We looked two weeks ago at uh, the trial uh, of Jesus before the Sanhedrin, and we noted there in verse 54, there's this somewhat ominous and cryptic verse there that seems to be out of place with the rest of that passage that speaks of Peter, who is following uh, Jesus uh, when he is there before the Sanhedrin and that he places himself before the fire uh, with the rest of the guards. And we noted then uh, that that verse is really a time indicator from Mark, letting us know that Peter's denial is taking place at the very same time Christ is suffering and being blamed uh, for blasphemy. Uh, So with that introduction out of the way, uh, let us now give attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word, beginning at verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I know it neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inspired word, mighty write its truth upon our hearts this morning. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we read of this famous passage that we all know very well of Peter's denial of our Lord three times. But Father, I pray that this morning as we delve into this text, that our eyes would not only be on Peter, but would be on all of us, who are sinners just as Peter is, and who have denied our Lord and Savior in one way or another in our lives. Pray, O oh Father, that you would shine our light, shine the light upon us and who we are at the core of our being as you shined it 2,000 years ago upon Peter, so that we might be prepared and ready to receive the gospel of grace. Jesus Christ, our Lord, who alone has come down to save sinners such as Peter and such as ourselves. Open the eyes of our hearts this morning, we pray, to see Christ afresh through the reading and the preaching of your word. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We have often heard people uh, say of someone who is living a wayward life, they just need to hit rock bottom. Oftentimes, this is uh, something people will say about those who are struggling with addiction, uh, who can't see the devastating effects their addiction is having on both themselves and their loved ones. Despite their loved ones' pleas that they should leave their addiction behind, uh, they just don't see the problem that they have, and they continue to insist that they are just fine. And it won't be until their lifestyle comes crashing down on them, until they hit rock bottom with nowhere else to go, with no resources 
to help them in their addiction. It isn't until they reach that rock bottom place that they will begin, that they will begin to realize and see uh, their problem. Well, I think we could say of Peter throughout this gospel that he has a problem, that he has simply been unable to truly see throughout this gospel. And his problem, we could perhaps say, is pride, self-confidence, self-assurance, assurance in himself and in his own ability. We have really seen it throughout this gospel. We saw it back in chapter 8 after Peter's great confession that, that Jesus is the Christ. And, and Jesus follows up that great confession by, by predicting his crucifixion, that he will die. And you recall how Peter responded to that. He rebuked his Lord and he rebuked his cross. We saw it in chapter 9 at the Mount of Transfiguration when, when Peter, James, and John are are invited by Jesus to come onto the mountain where Jesus is transfigured and, and they get a glimpse of that glory that Jesus will have when he finishes his work on the cross and he is raised and ascended to seat, sit at the right hand of God the Father. And they see Moses and Elijah to the right and to the left of Jesus witnessing this glory. And rather than Peter being humbled and simply beholding this magnificent sight, Peter makes the insists that they create tents, make tents for Elijah and Moses and Jesus to dwell in. We saw it in this very chapter in chapter 14, verse 31, after Jesus predicts the disciples will abandon him. And you remember how Peter responds to that. He says, they might abandon you, but I will not. And Peter even says that he will die for Christ. We saw it in verse 47 of this chapter when Peter takes out his sword and, and strikes the ear of one of the guards seeking to arrest Jesus. Peter there by his own strength, trying to save his Lord, trying to save Jesus from the inevitable, from what Jesus has come to do, to die. We've seen his pride, his confidence in his own strength throughout this gospel. And it is not as though his faulty ways have gone unchecked by Jesus. We have seen Jesus throughout Peter's faulty ways, checking Jesus, seeking to correct Jesus. Much like loved ones with an, an addict, as they see their addict living the lifestyle they're living, continually asking them to change their life, to, to put whatever addiction they have down. So also Jesus, throughout this gospel, corrects Peter as he shows this self-confidence, this pride, this self-assurance in himself. After Peter's denial of Christ's cross, we saw Jesus say to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. When Peter says he wouldn't fall away from the Lord, back in chapter 14, earlier in this same chapter, Jesus says, he predicts what we will read of here this morning, that Peter will deny him three times, which should have caused Peter to be humble, to realize what his Lord is, sees in him. In John's account of Peter cutting off the guard's ear, in John 18, verse 11, Jesus says, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So throughout Peter's display of pride and, and self-confidence, Jesus has sought to correct Peter, to, 
to highlight to Peter his wayward ways, his pride, and his self-confidence. Yet nothing really seems to give. It seems as we read the gospel and focus specifically on Peter, that the only thing that is left for Peter is for Peter to hit rock bottom. And then, and only then, will he be able to see his own problem and properly see with clear eyes who his Lord is and what his Lord has come to do to save sinners such as Peter. And so what we see today with Peter and his denial of Christ three times is we see Peter hit rock bottom. And I want us to consider three things about Peter's denial of Jesus here this morning. First, it is shameful. Second, it is swift. And third, it is sorrowful. It is shameful, it is swift, and it is sorrowful. First, it is shameful. Now, in most of our English translations, we have a heading uh, up, up, up above this passage that says, Peter denies Christ. And then what follows is verse 66. That, however, is really quite deceiving to us, the reader. It, in our minds, sort of breaks off this section from the previous one. But in the original scriptures, there is no clear line of demarcation between verse 65 and verse 66. Verse 66 flows naturally from verse 65. And what is it that verse 65 speaks of? It speaks of Christ being spat upon, beaten, and mocked. As Christ is suffering, Peter is denying. Verse 71, the ESV says, he cursed himself. However, the Greek, in the Greek, there is no himself there. There is no object to the verb. It simply says he cursed, leaving open who he might have cursed. I agree with most commentators that probably here what it indicates is that it is an all-comprehensive cursing. Not only is Peter cursing himself, but more than likely, he is cursing his Lord as well. This is a shameful denial from Peter. We are told in Luke's account of Peter's denial, in Luke chapter 22, verse 61, that after Peter's third denial, Christ looks at him. Now think for a moment what we read of two weeks ago. What happens to Peter at the end of that Sanhedrin trial? What is it that Peter sees when he looks at Jesus? What would, what would it have been that he would have seen? He would have seen bruises on his face. He would have seen spit dripping down his face that was due to the faithfulness that Christ had to the cross for Peter. The contrast between Peter and and Jesus makes this denial all the more shameful, all the more disgusting in God's sight. Mark highlights the contrast between Christ and Peter further by writing of Peter's denial in the form of a legal trial. There are sort of legal overtones in the way Mark writes this section here. For instance, Peter's first denial in verse 68, I neither know nor understand what you mean, is a formal phrase that was often used in rabbinical law for a formal legal denial in a court setting. 
It's a phrase that the accused would often use when he denies the official charges placed against him in a formal court setting. This trial-like setting is further enhanced when we see Peter's third denial. Verse 71, we are told that he swears. Matthew 26, verse 72 says that he denied Christ with an oath. Think for a moment of our courts today in America when a witness or perhaps the defendant goes to the stand and what is it that they do? They place their hand on the Bible and they give an oath and they say, I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. The lie that follows that oath is even that much more horrific, isn't it? It adds weightiness to the ugliness of the lie. Really what we see here, what we should understand with Peter as a Jew, more than likely he has invoked the name of Yahweh in his oath and in his swears. He has placed his hand on the Bible and he has denied his Lord. This is Peter, the accused, on trial. And his accusers are charging him with the charge, you are a follower of Christ. And he uses all the language of an official charge against him, and he officially says, no, I am not. Contrast this with Jesus' trial that we read of two weeks ago in the previous section. When the high priest asks Christ, are you the Christ? And Jesus simply says in verse 62, I am. Our denials of Christ become all the more shameful when we consider his faithfulness toward us. Our rejection of him is all the more disgraceful when we see how he has been disgraced for us. Dripping with sweat dripping with spit, bruised and blindfolded so that we might be saved. Yet we say, I know him not. Our denials of him, whether it be by what we say or what we don't say, are shameful because Christ has said when he was put on trial, I am he for us. So we see Mark in the way he writes this passage, right on the heels of Jesus saying, I am he. Here is Peter saying, I know him not. The contrast between the two adds weightiness to the shame of this denial. He curses his Lord. This is a shameful denial from Peter. Second, it is swift. This denial is swift. Back in verse 30 of this same chapter, we saw Jesus predict that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crows twice. Here in this passage, we see that prophecy is coming to fulfillment. Verse 68, after Peter denies Christ the first time, the ESV says that the rooster crowed. Now, you might have in your translation of the Bible a footnote at the bottom there that says that some manuscripts omit that section or omit that phrase that the rooster crowed. However, I think there is enough sufficient manuscript evidence that would allow for the inclusion of that passage. But either way, there is no dispute that Jesus did, in fact, say that Peter would deny his Lord three times before the rooster crowed twice. Now, that 
phrase there that the rooster crowed after his first denial actually gives us an indication of the time, the amount of time that lapsed between Peter's first denial and his third. Within Jerusalem, it was a peculiar habit of the rooster uh, to crow three times between midnight and 3 a.m., which was the reason why back in Mark chapter 13, verse 35, you have that phrase, the cock crow, and then at the bottom it will say in your footnote that it was the third watch of the night. They could set their watch on the, on the, on the cock crowing three times in between midnight and 3 a.m. The first crow would come about half hour past midnight, the second crow would come a half hour, excuse me, an hour after that. And then the third crow would come an hour after that. So you would have an hour interval in between each crow. But what does that indicate to us? It indicates to us that within the span of an hour, Peter denies his Lord three times. Peter, who has been one of the inner circle with Peter, and with James and John, with, with Jesus, Peter, who has witnessed the glory of Christ, Peter, who has spent three years with Jesus, seeing his glory, seeing his miracles, Peter, who has confessed that Jesus is the Christ within the span of one hour, denies his Lord three times. This is a quick and swift rebellion against God. Within the matter of an hour, the self-confident, sword-slinging Peter denies his Lord three times. Not only does this sin come quickly, but notice that it goes from bad to worse. At the first crow, he simply denies and pleads ignorance. At the third crow, he is cursing. Not only does sin come quickly, but once entered into, it continues to get more and more heinous. The slope towards sin is quick and easy. And once entered into, it goes from bad to worse. We read in our unison reading of Scripture from Psalm 51, which is David's confession of sin after he committed adultery and murder. Well, that adultery and murder took place in 2 Samuel 11. But do you know what was taking place in the previous chapter in 2 Samuel 10? We saw David in all his glory as victorious king defeating his enemies. We saw the David that we probably got so many times when we were kids in the storybook Bible. David, that victorious, righteous David, defeating the enemies of the Lord. But within one chapter... He becomes a conspirator, an adulterer, and a murderer. Within one chapter, he goes from the mountaintop to saying, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. As my professor in seminary used to say, the trek toward righteousness is long, arduous, and slow but the trek down towards sin is swift and easy. Sometimes, isn't it true, brothers and sisters, we look at that mountain of righteousness. 
We look at that mountain of sanctification, that mountain of holiness that we are called to engage in and to trek up toward, to progressively shred sin and become more and more conformed into the image of Christ. We look at that mountain and it just looks so daunting. It looks like Mount Everest and we don't have the proper equipment to climb up it. We look to our left and we look to our right and we see that quick, smooth, and easy path of sin. And we might be tempted to say, what's the point? What's the point of me beginning to trek up that mountain again only for me to so quickly fall down in my sin? I cannot do it. I might as well give in to that quick and easy and smooth path to my left and to my right. It's too hard. The burden And the load is too much for me to bear. How many people have fallen away from the faith or have even failed to enter into it because they thought that was the Christian life? Rather than seeing that daunting mountain, rather than seeing that daunting law of God and causing them to run to Christ, it causes them to run into that swift, an easy road of sin. In Sinclair Ferguson's book, The Whole Christ, the book we are reading together as men in our Bible study, which we will be looking at tomorrow, he gives a rather lengthy quote from Charles Spurgeon in one of Spurgeon's sermons entitled Christ Crucified. And in this sermon that Ferguson quotes from Spurgeon, Spurgeon takes on one of his heroes He critiques one of his favorite books. In fact, a book he would read once every year, a book I'm sure many of you have read, John Bunyan's famous classic, Pilgrim's Progress. And Spurgeon, before he takes on this book, this classic that has meant so much to many of us, I'm sure, he does preface it by saying, I love John Bunyan, but he is certainly not infallible. And so he gives this critique of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And in the sermon, he told the story of a young man in Edinburgh, who wished to be an evangelist to his own hometown people in Edinburgh. And so what he did was he went and found the first person he could to to preach and share the gospel with. And he found this lady, this woman, who had a fish basket upon her shoulder. And he ran up to her and he said, Here you are coming along with your burden on your back. Let me ask you, have you got another burden? a spiritual burden. The lady replied, you mean the burden in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress? Because if you do, young man, I got rid of that burden many years ago, but I went away better than the pilgrim did. The evangelist that John Bunyan talks about was one of your parsons that did not preach the gospel, for he said, keep that light in your own eye and run to the wicked gate. Why, man alive, that was not the place to run to. He should have said, do you see that cross? Run there at once. But instead of that, he sent the poor pilgrim to the wicket gate first. And much good he got by going there. He got tumbling into the slow of despond and was like to be killed by it. At this, the man was embarrassed and said, but did you not go through the slow of despond? The lady responded and said, Yes, I did. 
but I found it a great deal easier to go through it with my burden off than with my burden on. Friends, if we look at the Christian life as though we are outside of Christ seeking to work our way in, it is a matter of time. It is inevitable. We will always, always choose that quick, swift, and easy path of sin. But if we begin in Christ, with the acknowledgement and understanding that all of our sins have been forgiven in his cross, we start to see the ugliness of that quick and easy path. We, we can't even think of following that path anymore, and we start to see the beauty of that mountain, that law of God that no longer bears a curse upon us, but now is a rule of faith for our lives. And we can run up it because our burden has been shed in Christ Jesus and the work he has done for us. Galatians 5 says, for freedom you have been set free. For freedom you have been set free. You have been set free from the law so that you can now glory and bask in it and run up that mountain with no more burden upon your back, free from sin, free from that heavy load. And you can do it with joy and with peace reigning in your hearts. Third and finally, we see that this denial is sorrowful. We see that this denial is sorrowful. Verse 72, after the rooster crows the second time, after Peter has denied Christ three times, we are told that Peter broke down and wept. Matthew and Luke's account tells us he wept bitterly. The sorrow over his sin comes crashing in on him, much like it did with David in our unison reading of Scripture in Psalm 51. But I don't think we should see this bitter weeping from Peter just as a sorrow over his denial of Christ three times. I don't think what we should see here is just this specific bitterness and specific weeping over a specific incident and fall. Rather, these three denials bring to bear upon Peter who he truly is. He is not the righteous man that can rebuke his Lord as he did in chapter 8. He is not the courageous man who will die with Christ as he promised earlier in chapter 14. No, he is a sinner. And this heinous sin only uncovers what he is at his core, a sinner. Think again of Psalm 51. It was the sin with Bathsheba that precipitated the writing of Psalm 51. But what is it that David says in that psalm? I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The heinous sin with Bathsheba only sought to highlight to David and to his eyes what he has always been from his birth, a sinner. God has released his hand from Peter, and he has allowed him to reach rock bottom. And in reaching rock bottom, whether Peter knows it or not, 
he is as close as he's ever been to truly understanding his Lord's mission to come down and save sinners, helpless sinners, such as Peter. It's interesting to think, isn't it, where Peter would be if this denial never took place? If God, by his providence, steered Peter away from that fire? Where would David have been if by God's providence, he steered him away from that rooftop where he could get that vision of Bathsheba. We wouldn't have Psalm 51. We wouldn't have the psalm that shows to us who we are at our core. God, by his grace, will for a time leave his people to taste the bitter tears of their sin so that the loveliness and the beauty of Christ might shine upon them. I once heard a pastor say a certain congregant came up to him and wanted him to pray for him. And this pastor prayed over him and simply said, Lord, bring this man sorrow. Bring this man sorrow. Because he saw in this man the same problem Peter had, his pride his self-confidence. He had not yet tasted the loveliness of Christ because he had not yet tasted the bitterness of his sin. Let me ask you today, brothers and sisters, when was the last time you weeped over your sin? When was the last time your true condition was recognized before a holy God on your knees in prayer? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That word blessed could easily be translated happy. Happy are those who are spiritually bankrupt. How can that be? Happy are those who are spiritually bankrupt? That doesn't make any sense. How can that possibly be? Well, it's because when we recognize that we are born in rock-bottom territory, only then can we be lifted up to that high mountain of holiness. Not by us in our own efforts, but by Christ who alone has ascended it with clean hands and a pure heart. You want to be at the top of the mountain with Christ? Then recognize your rock-bottom status as a sinner before a holy God. Peter has seen rock bottom. And whether he knows it or not, he is more prepared than ever for the day of resurrection, where he will be able to run as a humble, helpless sinner to the only hope of our salvation, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Recognize your rock bottom status today and be lifted up by the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we are at rock bottom. There is nothing in our hands that we bring, no simply to your cross do we claim. And so we pray, O oh Father, that each and every one of us, you would strip us of our pride so that we might see Christ for who he is the all-sufficient Savior, and that we might hide ourselves in him 
and in him see the beauty of your word as a rule for faith. And we might see that mountain, that holy hill, as a wonderful blessing to climb up. Yes, we will be bruised. Yes, we will be knocked down. But we will have Christ holding our hand throughout. Give each and every one of us in this room the assurance of Jesus Christ and our union and communion with him in and through and by faith that you have given us by the regeneration of your Holy Spirit. Give us the love and the gratitude of your love that has been poured out on us at the cross of Calvary. Do this, we pray, for we ask it. In the strong and precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.